listening to Perfume on the Radio. On Welcome to Perfume on the Radio. If this is your first time tuning in, Perfume on the Radio is a bi-monthly program presented by the Institute for Art and Olfaction, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to experimentation and access in the field of perfumery, based here in the beautiful, hot, and palm-lined Los Angeles. My name is Saskia Wilson-Brown, and I'm the founder of the Institute for Art and Olfaction. I usually host these episodes, but not today. Today's episode is extra special, and that's because it was written, recorded, produced, and hosted by my very talented friend, John Beeble. He even wrote some of the music. John Beeble is a graduate of the Cooper Union in New York City, where he studied painting and photography. He's lived in New York, London, and Boston, and currently lives in Cranston, Rhode Island, just south of Providence, with a studio in a lovely place called Pawtucket. John is a painter, a user experience application designer, and a founding member of Subforum, which is a Cambridge-based design research collective that tackles important questions about human interaction with technology. Beyond that, John is a writer for the scent website Fragrantica, and last but not least, he is a perfumer. His perfume line is called January Scent Project, and he started it in 2015. So there we go. That's John. He's an accomplished person, to say the least. But beyond that, he's a beautiful soul. And I'm an atheist, but I do believe that if an angel had a voice, the angel might just sound like John. You're in for a stellar hour of radio, so sit back and get your coffee or your whiskey on the rocks, and join me in welcoming John Beeble for Perfume on the Radio, episode 12, Smell, Sound, and the Wireless. We have all experienced this. You're working in some capacity, something that requires you to use your brain intensely. So you're concentrating and you really need to focus, but you're finding that the stimuli around you isn't helping. It's all creating a distraction. What do you do? The question hovered around my consciousness for many years and still does. It began as more of an academic inquiry when I was part of a design meetup group in the Cambridge MIT area a few years back. A group of us would get together with some other UX designers, researchers, product designers, and anyone else who was interested in design thinking. One of the recurring topics was that of distraction. We were well aware of its negative impact on our daily rituals. The most recurrent theme was how phones were such a dangerous distraction to driving. We'd facilitate events and get-togethers where we'd creatively answer such questions as, how do you combat distraction? Although at the time I didn't realize it, these events and some of the solutions would open my thoughts about the greater impact of how we think and how we work, and for me, how I make perfume. It's no coincidence that I've been finding a ton of distractions going on in my everyday work. 
There are some times when I jokingly thought of myself as a bird. You know they say that birds are drawn to shiny things. They'll zero in on them, grab them, put them in their nests. I could see myself getting drawn toward shiny things, symbolically or otherwise, but basically things that would distract me. And much of the work that I needed to do required fairly intense immersion. I managed to find ways to get into deep work at my full-time job, doing user experience design for software. This usually meant simply putting on headphones and selecting some sounds that would help create a sweet spot to get into the zone. But the work in my studio was another puzzle altogether, and this began a very long process of discovery. I like to think of this whole realm of inquiry as the relationship of sound and smell, and in my case, how it impacts the way that I work as a perfumer. About six years ago, I was in a funny position. I had a fascinating workspace at a studio in a converted 19th century textile mill building. It's not very different from the space I have now in Rhode Island. Only this previous space, just outside Boston, Massachusetts, had one rather fatal flaw. Due to a very ancient and expensive-to-fix sprinkler system, all the walls between the different spaces ended about three feet before they touched the ceiling. So a continuous open-air track of three feet lined the ceiling above all the studios. Now at first this might not sound like such a big deal. I mean, the ceilings were enormously high. Years before, the studio organization had to make a choice. Let everyone make as much noise as they liked, or enforce a kind of quiet policy. They chose the latter. When I first moved into this space, I rather liked the notion of a library-like setting where you only heard paper rustling or maybe some brushes or the occasional staple gun. Generally, however, I like to listen to music while I'm painting, so scheduling generally worked out okay. I'd leave my job, and I'd arrive at the studio at about 5.30 or 6 p.m., just about the time when the day crew were leaving to go home, and the day crew were the majority of the artists. I think things changed, or at least my perceptions of working changed a lot, when I began making perfumes. It was in many ways an extension of my work as a painter, but now it was just with very different media, which required a different set of rules for engagement. Both forms of expression demanded a lot of time and attention. You can't just idly pick up either professions out of nowhere, or at least not for me. This seems to be a habit of mine, picking up areas of study that demand a lot of deep attention. Research shows that we enter a very different state of mind when we're engaged in deep work. It's very difficult to us to move in and out of this state at will. Attention and focus takes about 20 minutes to enter and 20 minutes to disengage. So those half-hour open time slots on your calendar are a bit useless, unless you're using them just to make a sandwich or to go for a short walk. Music, and sound in general, can often assist in entering this kind of intense working zone, but it has to be a very certain kind of sound. You'll see this reflected in some interesting videos on YouTube. 
They're usually very long, simple loops of film accompanied by music with names like two hours of great classical pieces to enhance studying or three hours of wordless melodies and gentle rain sounds. Funny as the titles may strike us, they're there for a reason because they seem to work. There was something comedic about my new mixed palette of media at the former studio setup. I more or less segregated the painting area from the fragrance area into two sub-studios, if you will. Fragrance work can sometimes be loud, particularly if you drop things or wash things or stir things in big glass beakers. So I found myself being particularly quiet so as not to disturb the piece. Don't forget that empty space at the top of the walls. There was also the added pressure of keeping all the smelly things very contained so that they didn't escape and bother any of the other studio mates. This last part was much easier than I'd expected and soon found that the best perfume studios have almost no smell at all when you enter them. Containing a neutral smelling space is an extremely important part of making your work environment livable and workable. But as my study got deeper, there grew a need to have some kind of stimulus outside of my own brain. Music, sound, something that would form a backdrop to what I was smelling, noting, making comparisons about, writing down, studying. This need was really different from what I wanted or needed when I was painting. Painting often requires something loud, rhythmic, something I'd be singing along with or jumping around to. Fragrance work was vastly different. The lack of sound became haunting and difficult. Sound was needed, and what started as a simple question, what can I listen to as a companion to perfume work, became a small obsession and an act of refinement, trying to understand what exactly was the sweetest of sweet spots of sound, something that encouraged the greatest creativity from me when creating fragrances. Since I was often working late into the evening in this space, with the shortened walls, I was still able to bring in some sound, as long as it didn't get too loud. I've always been a music lover, and have even worn a musician's hat on a number of occasions, and still produce some music output. So sound is something that I do think a lot about. I was once in a band named Squid when I was in London. We had one live performance and played until we burnt out an amplifier. And I think the council flats still remember that disruption. But those were good times. I've used audio work in perfume as well. But when it comes to sound, I don't think I'm any more or less sensitive about it than others. I may just put more words to it or ponder some of the whys more deeply about sound. Some new kind of trigger snapped when I began studying fragrance materials, and I noticed this gap hanging in the air, suggesting that I needed something else to stimulate a different part of my brain when I was working. One of the early sound obsessions I found was bossa nova music. Que nada, eu sou da pesada Não lembro a fé em Deus e o pé na tábua Eu 
Bossa Nova, the new style or new wave that came from Brazilian samba in the early 1950s, was soon a constant companion for me, and it wasn't long before I found myself reaching the farthest corners of the internet for as much Bossa Nova as I could find. There's something about Bossa Nova beat construction, the mild vocal inflections, the guitar accents on what are usually the weaker beats, that kept this constant flow of sound in a sort of wave, something like a ride on a camel that seems to go on forever. It's a very watery, wavy sound, a kind of forced chill zone. For this part of my study, it was particularly important to have some music that followed me as I worked, which fit like a very comfortable coat, something that moves with you but doesn't define or constrict you. Bossa Nova has an organic flow that more or less says everything is okay. It also tends to be what I think of as low contrast, no big surprises, just mildly episodic, but never a grand opera of sonic events. It was here that I noticed something else rather important. There were times when engaging with language was either a help or a harm. It would depend a lot on what I was doing. If I needed to be focused on language myself, then the voices of others would be too much of a distraction. Sometimes a voice was a nice kind of companion to have there. Other times I would like to hear a voice, but I'd get confused by words. Bossa Nova was particularly helpful because I don't speak much else besides English and some rudimentary French, and nearly all the work is in Portuguese. What a delight it was to find that there'd been something of a Bossa Nova craze in Japan at nearly the same time, which sent me digging around Google for some great search strings such as Japanese Bossa Nova music 1960s. At this point in my perfume development, I had constructed my first composition, a perfume oil called Smolderos. I recall that at one point before it was finished, I dedicated a lot of my time to making the central smoke element. And this all happened while the now famous wildfires were raging throughout California. At the height of summer heat, a haze had become so choking and substantial that it permeated as far as the East Coast. And there was a brief moment when the sound of the distant city of Boston lingered in my ears as some sweat covered my forehead. The essential oils and molecules accumulated in the glass beneath me, and everything pulled together in a sublime but very difficult moment of serendipity. There wasn't any music that day, but so much sound. The buzzing of lawnmowers, the oppressive sound of stifling heat and humidity 
creaking floorboards, bass bouncing out of cars far below. Smoke in the perfume and smoke in the air. It was a very strange song. There were moments in the early stages of my learning and creating where I remember the pairing of smells and sounds and how a kind of weaving took place between new and important smells and sonic stimulus. For when I was in deep focus, other genres of music entered the library. I listened to the music of the realm called Exotica. This is a kind of jazz or lounge designation of 50s and 60s pop music, and it featured some brilliant composers in its day. It also crossed paths with what was loosely known as West Coast Jazz, another breezy, optimistic, even wistful sound. It was the kind of sound that often reflected a far-off horizon and suggested distant shores, the age of discovery, the Spice Islands. When I first smelled the component called stemone, a very green, rose-related scent, I was lifted and transported in a million directions, some forward in time and others backward. It's a kind of smell that defies easy categorization. And aren't those the ones that perfumers wrestle with the most and love the most? Stemone can smell strongly of rose leaves and greenery, but then when diluted just a bit, it takes on these delicate shades of very young, fresh rosebuds, so young, in fact, that they haven't quite blossomed. I recall how Stemone opened up many of my senses, as 50s exotica strings and bongos played in the background and filled in ethereal missing pieces. As I kept making perfumes, I began to notice that I would rarely create or study without some sound component accompanying me. But of course, it was still this semi-public studio space, so sound started to become an issue. This was brought to my startling attention when I arrived at the studio on a rare weekday. I'd taken the day off from work and began working alternately between painting and mixing together some oils. I recall distinctly that I'd been listening to a record of French medieval troubadour songs. Yet another of many, many sweet spots of sound that touched certain nerve centers in my brain. highly melodic chanting and heraldry of the troubadour 
in the meandering, ivy-like wandering of the lutes, mandolins, and hurdy-gurdies were backdrop to crisp, complicated smells of narcissus and jonquil, the smells of daffodils, as I was trying to sort them out in my mind. I'd been working on a very complex perfume formula, one that had taken many twists and turns, and was still not in the right place after many false starts. Alternately, I'd been writing reviews of perfumes for Fragrantica, and I remember distinctly afternoons with my laptop, being in coffee shops and blocking out the endless terror of inoffensive, mild, 90s guitar rock with this grouping of French medieval songs. It was the perfect sound to keep the brain alive as I was making perfumes and smelling them and even writing about them. But back to the smells at hand, the weirdly beautiful smells of Jonquil, with its earthiness and subterranean floral character, smelling more like green pollen and olives more than flowers, were cousins to this sound, this incredibly ancient medieval French music. studio that Tuesday, someone reminded me, rather abruptly, that my music was too loud, and I felt a kind of gentle crashing of worlds, followed by a stifling quiet. And then a series of events occurred, spread out over six months or so, which led me to relocate my studio, and eventually my home, to an hour south in Rhode Island. The move, in retrospect, made tons of sense. It put me closer to the water, and I can see Narragansett Bay as I'm speaking now, I'm that much closer to New York City and where I was raised in Connecticut, so though it wasn't a very far move, it did have an aspect of a homecoming. Yet it was still very new territory to me. It also meant that now I had walls that went all the way up to the ceiling, uninterrupted, and sound was no longer something I had to think about twice. My relationship with sound had some drastic shifts and turns at this point in time. I'd not only moved to a larger space, but found that I was commuting longer to my job. It was then that I rekindled the wonderful relationship I'd had for many years, but I'd put aside for a while, and that was my connection to radio. When I say radio, I mean what is often referred to as OTR, or old-time radio, those glorious days, which are probably far before most of our times, in which the simple sounds that emanated from the wireless brought to life vivid pictures, powerful narratives, the nuance of human voices. There was a particular day I was working, and I'd grown weary of listening to music, and was too easily distracted to listen to anything contemporary, that I remembered an old radio program that I liked, a suspense show called The Whistler. Yeah, I'm getting out of this place. I got a reason, a good reason. I got something waiting for me outside. Something that belongs to me. I'm the only one that knows where it is. And I'm getting out of here. You're in here for a long time, Bill. If you don't want to make the try with me, you can stay and rot. And after some initial searching, I found an active community of OTR listeners and archivers all over the world who were engaged in cataloging and tracking down the episodes of some of the most obscure radio transmissions from the earliest days. Within a week or so, 
Radio programs were sharing equal time with music in my studio, sometimes taking up even more time. I started following storylines. The studio became flooded with voices from the past. As I opened bottles of Glaxlide, Undecavitol, Aldehydes, and Vetiver, smelling the perfumer's smells of white musk, green leaves, soapy notes, and dry roots, voices fraught with meaning and substance conveying every possible emotion were registering in a different part of my brain, leaving me free to work on my own plateau. Oh, George, let's don't knock. I don't like this place. Let's go on. Wow, with a dead motor? Where could we go? No, I'll not. Well, all right. But what was actually happening? Well, I believe that I was experiencing much of what the contemporary podcast listener does today. They are hit in a very particular zone, a place where people are able to engage in multitasking and actually succeed at multiple tasks. So while I was working out the complexities of a fragrance accord, whether it be the math of diluting materials or measuring out specific amounts or making minute adjustments of patchouli oil, patchoun, suederol, or Himalayan cedar, or if I was just making purely speculative creative endeavors of mixing up strips of papers with things blotted on them, my head was still able to process the stories that were unfolding over the sound waves. Somewhere in the cold, persistent rain that made the city itself seem a thing of evil, a girl had disappeared, and it was my job to find her. But before I did, I found death and a devil. At times it felt miraculous. I didn't know that I could work like this with two parallel tracks at a time. I'm not quite wired this way. I tend to need focus very deeply in one place in order to make something work. But this was exactly what was required, a kind of engagement on two levels, where one could touch upon the other, but only when it was really needed, like repeating sound waves, where points would suddenly sink and then separate again. I may be able to help you. Did this uh, uh, Julia Perry deal in perfumes? That's right. Now, how did you know that? Because I just remembered something. And now I'm sure I can explain why my matches showed up where just they Just a did. minute, just a minute. You know, whenever I'm talking to a beautiful woman, somebody's always creeping around in the kitchen. Delving into radio can be a feast for a perfumer. Smell has an aspect of the eternal to it, and so do many of the sounds that radio brings forth. I must see you at once. My husband Bruce is in terrible danger. Could you possibly meet me in an hour at the Pelican Inn? It's a small roadside place on the way to Malibu. I'll explain everything then. There's a remarkable familiarity that comes from the sounds of horses' hooves, or car doors slamming, people shouting or professing their love to each other, purring romantically, or threatening in the tones of a New York City gangster. Some OTR programs proved to be particularly great for perfume study. I would listen to episode after episode of Gunsmoke. the longest-running radio shows and eventually TV shows in history. The premise was ridiculously simple. Marshal Matt Dillon tried to keep the peace in a rough-and-tumble frontier town in Kansas. 
There were gunfights, hard drinking at the local saloon, and a whole cast of characters that came and went, usually bringing all kinds of trouble with them. I'm curious to see if you're going to take care of him, that's all. Well, of course I am. He'll die if you don't hurry. Well, I... I'm going after him. When? Well, it's no business of yours when. Anybody following me is likely to run into trouble. From a shotgun, Chairman? I don't use a shotgun, Marshal. Your partner's dying, Jermo. You're wasting time. And he's dying. He's my partner, not yours. I'll take care of sure. him. Sure. Sure, Jermo. But you better hurry. The frontier town was rife with smells, a dusty cow town called Dodge City. After the opening strains of guitar, you could practically smell the sweetgrass and the dried wood from the storefronts, the sagebrush of Boot Hill, and the cottonwood trees. I guess the best thing that could be said for the night was that it was still. Not cold, not warm. Somewhere in that between that makes you wish it would be one thing or the other. Or maybe it was because we were tired that it didn't feel right. But there was a fascination about the shifting scenery, the sparse descriptions. Often dialogue and very faint incidental sound was used to evoke an entire setting of time, temperature, weather. You could smell the leather of boots, gun holsters, and Stetson hats, the powdery crinkle of violets in a starched cotton shirt behind a silk vest, with a shiny pocket watch held closely inside. I never saw a man with eyes as gray or... With a skin to his face so dry and tough, you'd swear you could get sparks off it with a flint. The soot of the train to Santa Fe was palpable with its greasy plumes of coal smoke and distant promises of another life over the horizon. These sounds were sometimes at odds with what I was constructing in my studio, and then suddenly, with a bizarre sense of union, they would fall into stark cadence, such as the day I was working on smells related to booze and alcohol. It barely registered at first, but I'd spent half an hour listening to the hollers and yelps of the saloon and its references to whiskey barrels, drunken slurred words. She's been talking a lot, but mostly about clothes and liquor. He don't say anything. Yeah. You think they're married? She's wearing a ring. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a man drink as much, Matt. It's like water with Honey! Him. Hey, you! Honey! Uh, yeah. Excuse me, Matt. Yeah, sure. Crashing glasses, corn liquor jugs, and then the brash sunlight of the next day as sobriety awoke mockingly on many faces. All the little nuances of a warm, dusty prairie night were awash across the table in front of me in rum ether, Damascus rose absolute, methyl octalactone, and other assorted alcohol-smelling substances. I sat in a bit of a daze, as I also recalled I was stuck in a kind of time warp, here in the 21st century. There's a homestead up around the bend. Listening to voices and sounds recorded in the 1950s. We'll stop and find out if they've seen anything. Which were recreations of sounds from the 1870s. <laughs> this phenomenon was to take on much more serious proportions for me, as COVID hit, and all of us began living in a kind of dream state between alternate realities. I can't count the number of days in which I floated between my house, my studio, and perhaps a grocery store, if that. 
All my contact was with people through a computer screen, occasionally the disembodied voice on a phone. But it was all somehow deeply surreal and tinged with fear. I found that a great deal of time in 2020 was spent working on a perfume that became an obsessive exercise. It was another complicated idea that had begun as a small stream, working its way into multiple river tributaries. For years I'd been thinking about ships and the trade routes, the spices from afar. Then one day I was listening to a radio play. Look out. Look out toward the harbor. There. At the pier. Do you see that ship? The white three-masted schooner. But now I have to step back momentarily and offer some context. In the 1970s, a famous radio producer decided to approach CBS with the crazy notion of producing modern radio plays, an hour long for each, to a new audience, some of whom had never known drama apart from television. It was perhaps a way to relive the glory days of radio of the past. But I know it's there. I know it's staring at me. And then it comes closer and closer to me. I feel it. I feel it touching me. A cold, terrifying touch. That began the brilliant and decade-long sound treasure known as CBS Radio Mystery Theater. The scripts were unreally creepy and wonderful. They sometimes featured brilliant actors of the day and some of the most important voice actors of all time. It was an incredible output in terms of number. In some years, they produced nearly one play per day. What was particularly noteworthy is that they essentially took all of the drama from radio, but added in more modern audio sensibilities, so creating these very artful sound landscapes, some of which are truly haunting. I think that they were almost a precursor to many audio formats that dominate our listening devices these days. It was on a late spring morning during the pandemic that I found myself listening to some of the CBS radio plays, and I thought, I'd really like to hear that short story by Guy de Maupassant again. CBS had dramatized a number of classic stories by de Maupassant, Melville, Poe, and others. This story in particular was a radio version of the rather complex and disturbing novella called The Horla. The name itself is a kind of mishmash in French of the words or and la, roughly meaning the thing that's out there, although it's a proper name in the story in the name of a Portuguese ship. The play, the audio, is truly haunting. That sound, that sound. It comes from the ship. I am sorry, but I I hear nothing. Nothing? I hear uh, seagulls, waves. And now, come, monsieur, it's thunder, it's storm. I must go aboard that ship. But they won't let you. Come, come quickly, monsieur. You'll catch your death. The ship. Over the next few months, I listened to this play over and over. 
In the meantime, I was working quite hard on creating some very strange perfume accords. A warm milk smell. An almond-scented accord, which proved to be much more difficult than I'd first imagined. A ylang-lang and civet floral note. A spice accord that conjured up the spice islands. On paper, the perfume idea was, frankly, something of a mess, or aspirational to be more forgiving. Our narrator in the play, the Horla, becomes obsessed with a gleaming white ship which is harbored outside near his flat. It's harbored, in fact, because it's in quarantine. It didn't quite dawn on me for a few months that everything was running in a strange parallel. The narrator becomes obsessed with the ship. The ghost and the supernatural being aboard the ship becomes obsessed with him. I was becoming obsessed with working out the puzzles of these disjointed notes, making costly errors here and there, getting one piece right only to ruin it by skewing the balance in another direction. Almonds and nutmeg, boiling milk and flowers, they started to smell like a very strange stew of steam and had their own hypnotic punch, one that would follow me in the little glass vials that I brought back and forth from the lab to my house, waiting to test them over the next few days. Sometimes they were small victories, and other times I was left to note what had to be tweaked and fixed. But I was exacting in my process. It was sometimes maddening. I spoke to almost no one. I thought constantly of the perfume. Or was it the ship? Or the supernatural being? The sounds of the horla were now part of the perfume. Everything was mixing together. At some point, I knew quite clearly that the pandemic itself had become the subject of this creation, although oddly, it expressed itself through the lens of this 19th century story of supernatural possession. As I mentioned before, I worked and listened, but in this case, the two tracks of my brain were more often in sync than not. I had a few strange transfixed moments when I felt the lines were blurring, and even as I grew closer to a conclusion where the fragrance was complete, tested, and final, I still had some trouble leaving the sensory envelopment that had taken place. Oh, I'm so tired, but don't let me sleep. Don't let me fall. In the end, the perfume was called Horla. There was no way to avoid that, and once I had decided to give it that name, a new kind of peace presided over the process. I drew an image that accompanied the bottle, the head of a sleeping man, his face just breaking the surface of the water, as a white three-masted schooner looms large above his head.
There haven't been many times in my life when so many points connect together with such angled precision, but then 2020 was not an ordinary year. It could very well be that I was looking, maybe even reaching outwardly, for points that I could connect together to make some sense of the world. Whether conscious or not, I know that fragrance and sound will always be linked for me. In the most pedestrian way, it's a connection that helps move the machine forward and keep it humming. Deeper in the psyche, it can be a means by which the hard, floral, or gauzy smells that we toil away with as perfumers can be steered toward new horizons or new shores. As I was preparing the audio portions of this piece, I was re-listening to a number of great radio programs, various pieces of music, and spoken word, and I noticed that there was a specific area of overlap between sound and smell that I wanted to discuss in more detail, another intersection of fragrance and audio. There is an entire historic body of work in which the construction of perfumes was developed as if the constituent parts were notes on a musical scale. This theory was developed by G.W. Septimus Peace, author of the book The Art of Perfumery, first published in 1857. It's still considered one of the foundational books for understanding the composition of fragrances. He created a mode of fragrance composition that was based on the musical scale, where certain smells were assigned note values. Although his methodology was somewhat fanciful and subjective, the parallels he assigned to music were strong enough that the suggestion of fragrance notes continued to be utilized to this day to describe separate constructive bits that make up the final composition of a fragrance. The structure of top, middle, and bottom notes has also persisted and thrived throughout fragrance making, although not everyone subscribes to this specific kind of experience. It's not the only way to know a perfume. But it does at least divide up the experience into three handy parts, beginning, middle, and end. And in this way, it resembles other forms of artistic expression, things like novels, films, plays, Anything that is time-based and follows a kind of timeline, and in some cases, a narrative structure. So here I was listening to so much audio, smelling a number of things, both fragrance chemistry and perfumes themselves, and I wanted to offer up a good case study of how these worlds can run in curious parallel to each other. 
I found a great pairing of sound and smell that we can use as our jumping off point. One of the great classic fictional detectives of the 20th century is that of Philip Marlowe, originally created through the pulp stories and eventual novels of author Raymond Chandler. His work crystallized the idea of the hard-boiled detective in many of our current tropes of the smooth-talking, wise-cracking, scotch-pounding, street-wise man with a Smith & Wesson snub-nose revolver are based on Philip Marlowe. Chandler's stories were perfect subjects for sound and radio, and even though a few notable films and a TV show did come out of the world of the character, nothing ever quite lived up to the four years of radio stories that the adventures of Philip Marlowe delivered over the airwaves. Chandler's dialogue was so perfectly pitched with just the right kind of visual metaphors, the smoky nightclubs in the deserts would come to life effortlessly from his pen and from the pens and typewriters of subsequent writers who would imitate his style for radio scripts. The majority of the episodes were played by the incredible actor Gerald Moore, who had a wry, sardonic kind of audio sneer that coupled with genuine self-reflection and sincerity, which could please even the most jaded of audiences. I was sitting in my office bombing the ashtray on my desk with paper clips, wondering what kind of a job a private detective gets when clients stop calling completely. I listened through a few of the classic episodes recently to find an exemplary case of audio perfection, one that illustrated the ups and downs and narrative flourishes and flashes that a great fragrance does as well. I found that perfect coupling, the Marlowe episode called The Panama Hat, and the fragrance Hermes's sun-drenched Elixir de Merveille. The story is typical of the Marlowe detective noir genre. A client calls him in a flurry of fear, hoping that he will take on their particular worry. In this case, it's a rich but concerned young bride whose recently wed husband is the victim of blackmail. The story is set in sunny Malibu, California. And here I should note that most of Marlowe's adventures are based in Los Angeles or other areas of Southern California, with the occasional wandering out to Arizona or as far afield as Chicago or New York when necessary. The descriptions of the heat, the ever-present sun, is characteristic of the radio stories. This sense of sun reminded me immediately of the sunniest of fragrances, Hermes's addition to their line of Merveille or Wonders perfumes, the elixir, created by the perfume master Jean-Claude Elena, is an homage to the smell of oranges, resins, intense woody notes, and sweet caramel. Our protagonist is Isabel Gordon, wife to the blackmail victim Bruce Gordon. She's also niece to Avery Fairchild, a wealthy California businessman who is supporting them both financially. We first meet Marlowe and Isabel together at the Pelican Inn. She's described as tall and thin and straight out of Harper's Bazaar, exactly the kind of person who might wear something like Alexa de Merveille. One look at her fear-crowded eyes and I knew it was Isabel Gordon. I got up and introduced myself. Then we went to a table and she started to talk. For two weeks now, Mr. Marlowe, my husband Bruce has been receiving unsigned, threatening letters. I'm almost sick with worry. I, 
I don't know what to do. Now, wait a minute, Mrs. Gordon. The first thing to do is to get hold of yourself. The fragrance is a delight of sweetness, tempered by a darker woody base, hinted at with oak wood and patchouli. Oak wood, when combined with other ingredients, can smell a lot like brandy or a fancy liqueur like Cointreau, and it's here in excess in the opening of Elixir de Merveille. And as you might guess, Marlowe and Isabel first meet for a drink to discuss the case. The intensity of the fragrance matches the fire that starts quickly in the Marlowe story. Shortly after he agrees to take on her case, he showers and gets ready to drive to the Fairchild Mansion, where Isabel and Bruce reside along with the temperamental uncle. He soon meets with his first calamity. That nut was aiming right for you. Yeah, yeah, looks that way. Did you happen to get his number? No. What no, about his I face? Didn't. Can you describe him? No. Matter of fact, I only noticed one thing. What was that? The hat he was wearing. It was a white Panama. <laughs> So now we see that a white Panama hat will be a recurring theme. Not unlike the sort of hat that one would wear in the intense sun to shield one from its rays, so too do I see Elixir de Merveille as a quintessential sunny, light-infused fragrance. And similarly, we careen into the smell headfirst, much as we do with the Marlowe case, in that first rush of orange peel and the beginning strains of vanilla amber. Marlowe finally makes his way to the estate and learns the facts of the case. It seems that Gordon is considered a wastrel by his father-in-law. There is trepidation between all the characters, and plenty of hints dropped about why Gordon might be the victim of blackmail. Isabel, my feelings about your husband are no secret. You're being unfair, Uncle Avery, just because Bruce is an artist and he... Artist, is he? Why, Isabel, that man's no more an artist than I am a horse jockey. Good evening, everybody. Hello, Bruce. The father-in-law is a mean, heartless industrialist who has no patience for Gordon, an artist. Isabella is desperate as her marriage is a fairly new one, and she seems to be managing the tempers of both her husband and uncle. Her husband has become a photographer as profession, and we're given a hint about the metamorphosis of this new occupation. It's been a great relief to him after he returned from the war. The fact that the Marlowe programs were recorded in the early post-World War II period reflects some of the return to normal that many Americans were struggling to do at that period of time, and so Gordon fits this type well. There is a brief and gentle moment when Gordon is talking about the pleasure and ease with which his new hobby has given him some comfort. It's reflective of Merveille's similarly sweet and ambering opening strokes, tinged just slightly with bits of buttery sandalwood that surface even at this early stage. Wearing it again for the first time in a while, I notice how this fragrance really can move with the regularity of a roller coaster, depending on your mood. First a bit of gentle Peru balsam cozies up to meld with your skin chemistry, and then a bolt of white flowers, like a thin edge of jasmine, darts across your path, momentarily upsetting your calm and throwing a pebble against the glass. We have a clue as to Gordon's less-than-perfect composure when he tries to hide something among his photographs. He calls them abstract photography. One of the images features a composition of the sun and a plant shoot. 
Given the time context, this may have been a cultural jab at abstract art in general, or perhaps at the amateur nature of Gordon's work, or even perhaps at the lack of artistic finesse that Marlowe exhibits, but it provides a good opening for a peer into our victim of blackmail. Meanwhile, the fragrance cooks along on the skin, much sunnier and bolder than I remember, having first worn this many years ago. Like many amber-based perfumes, it's got something in there that has a kind of universal appeal. It's hard not to like amber fragrances. But still there is some trickery going on. Soon we find we're among the middle notes, and it becomes much woodier, and the full intensity of amber and siam resin are the primary notes that take over our senses. Meanwhile, Marlowe meets with more shenanigans and a punch to the face. Someone is trying to stop him from any further detecting. More characters have entered the scene. John Skipper Martin, a known gambler, is cousin to Isabel, and soon emerges as another possible suspect. I grabbed my gun and made for the door. But the second I threw it open, I knew that I'd made a mistake. Whoever kicked over that shovel had hurt me, and met me with a large fist that came straight at my face. Oh! Marlowe tucks into his car and heads over to Hollywood for an unscripted visit with Skipper to see if he was the one wearing the white Panama hat, and also if he was the one who gave him the knuckle sandwich. Elixir de Merveille, because of its rich orange and amber tones, is sometimes worn as a cold-weather perfume as well, which adds to its mystery. It's a fragrance that takes many small twists and turns, but truly suddenly appears as a deep and sensuous dark note as it starts to move into its final stages. And as this is happening, the victim of our blackmail suddenly becomes the victim of a kidnapping. Enter Carla Winters, the femme fatale, who is yet another hint of a possible suspect in this complex detective story. Carla is red-haired, green-eyed, seductive, and clearly in charge of Skipper. She's up to no good at some point in the story. She could just as easily wear Alexa de Mervy. I crawled up to a lace curtain window where I could see what was going on. One look at Miss Winters made the damage I was doing to my tweeds worthwhile. Flaming red hair and a waist you could span with two hands. If you were lucky enough to get that close. Uncle Avery manages to scrounge up to $50,000 to pay the ransom needed for the return of our kidnapped Bruce, and the story becomes a more complex game of chess. Everything seems sinister, and nearly everyone is a possible suspect. We're on a steady upward narrative stream in the same way that the elixir is cranking up the darker nuances as the last bit of fragrance play out in an extended, warm, and steamy mass. It becomes distinctly smoky, and the amplified wood notes are larger and more pronounced. The sweetness has receded, and we now smolder with a new intensity. Meanwhile, Bruce is returned after the ransom is paid, and Uncle Avery seems to want to wash his hands of the whole affair. But something is clearly off here. The mystery of the Panama hat is not solved. Nor is the ransom. We still don't know who needed the money, although it seems like Skipper Martin could have used it to pay off some gambling debts. A few key strokes start to come together, and Marlowe begins to frame a picture. Now things began to add up. There is great shock and awe as Marlowe, the local police, and Uncle Avery realize that Bruce has been behind the kidnapping the whole time. The man in the white Panama hat who kidnapped Bruce Gordon, Lieutenant, is Bruce Gordon himself. In other words, Bruce Gordon kidnapped Bruce Gordon. No! What? And we've been hoodwinked and swindled here. You're out of your mind, Marlowe. Am I? Ah, but there's a sweet bit of relief that we can put a bit of a button on this. 
and it all occurs in just half an hour. Elixir de Merveille has a much longer story arc than this, but the structure is, in many ways, delightfully similar. Abrupt opening, chaos of ups and downs as we shift between overlapping stories and overlapping perfume notes, a crescendo of punctuated threats and accusations, and then a cooing of resolve and softness. A characteristic of the Marlowe programs is that he often closed with a wry observation about life in general, based loosely on the happenings of the case. Sometimes the observations were more sinister and bleak, especially when he discovered a truly sad story behind his clients. But in this case, we leave Marlowe and Isabelle on a softer tone, much like we leave Elixir de Merveille, wiser, lighter, and a bit pink from some sun. And that is our show. I want to take an extra moment to thank John Beeble for that beautiful radio piece. I also want to thank Darian Zahedi and Maxwell Williams for our perfume on the radio identities, and always to Lookout FM for hosting this admittedly rather niche radio show. All the music that John used for his episode is in the public domain or was used under fair use. Some of it he composed himself. Again, he's a talented guy. Perfume on the Radio is a bi-monthly radio show produced by the Institute for Art and Olfaction for Los Angeles' nonprofit radio station Lookout FM. The Institute for Art and Olfaction is also a nonprofit, and we are dedicated to accessibility and experimentation in the field of perfume, olfactory art, and other expressions with scent. You can learn all about us at artandoldfaction.com. This episode, like all others, will be archived on perfumeontheradio.com. If you, like me, enjoy a good podcast, you can also download it on a podcast provider of your choice. Who knows? Maybe that's where you're listening to it right now. This was Perfume on the Radio, episode 12, hosted by John Beeple. My name is Saskia Wilson-Brown, and I'm here to say goodbye. See you next time, and until then, keep it kind, keep it real, and keep it smelly. You're listening to Perfume on the Radio.